I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. We worship at Island Creek Elementary School, 7855 Morning View Lane, every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. today is in Matthew 27, beginning with verse 45. From noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, and about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, this man is calling for Elijah, At once, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Then Jesus cried again with a loud voice and breathed his last. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. After his resurrection, they came out of the tombs and entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now when the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were terrified and said, Truly this man was God's son. Many women were also there looking on from a distance. 
They had followed Jesus from Galilee and had provided for him. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. So uh, we have been working our way through a series, and it is now leading us to Friday and Saturday. And there are many accounts, many accounts of Friday and Saturday, whole, whole um, verses. If you ever read the Good Friday liturgy, if, we, if you did it in full, it is long. It is very long. And every account, Mark, Matthew, Luke, has their own way of telling it. But today, um, I figured we would sit in, Luke, in, um, in Matthew for a bit. It says, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? According to four gospel writers... And across all four of the Gospels, Jesus spoke seven times from the cross. He dies, as it were, one word at a time. What Jesus says from the cross, if you were to string together all the Gospels, tells you the story of Jesus on the cross. For two millennia, the church has counted out these words like, like, like silver dollars. These words, what do these words mean During the six hours of his dying, he expressed the full range of human anguish from the absence of water to the absence of God. But in the Gospel of Matthew that we read today, Jesus speaks only once from the cross. There is no other account in Matthew of these other seven things. It's one thing. The four Gospels are all written in Greek, But during Jesus' earthly life as a Jew, he would have spoken a dialect of Hebrew. But only this one sentence in all of the Gospels is quoted in Hebrew. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Because he wants to explain how the bystanders could have mistaken a cry for God, Eli, for a cry to Elijah. How typical, right? In the fog of a public execution of an innocent man, the most heart-wrenching word of Jesus to his father is completely misunderstood. It's a small detail to this story, but it contributes to the terrible, almost clinical realism of this whole scene. Of the seven words that Jesus spoke, why memorialize this one? Why would Matthew do that? It expresses no love for his mother or compassion for his executors, ex- executioners. It, it's, it's not a grand word. It's not even... in intelligible to to the rest of us or in the same language that the rest of us would end up reading this text. Jesus is engulfed in the chaos of dying. He's hanging there in the dark. He cannot breathe. He cannot see what is left but to cry out 
to the God who has abandoned him. In one gospel, he commends his spirit to God. In another, he regally announces the completion of his mission of God's. But in Matthew, his life ends with only a question. It is a cry into the night in which the human spirit is broken down and its most basic units of anguish. Daddy, why? It's the question. Daddy, why? The church calls this, or has called this throughout the ages, the cry of dereliction which is a terrible word, if you think about it. A derelict ship, have you ever heard of that? A derelict ship is one that is about to sink. The men and even the rats have abandoned it to the wind and the waves. Some years ago, a famous scholar did a comparison between the death of Socrates and the death of Jesus. This is not the first time this was done. People have done this comparison. Early opponents of Christianity did this comparison over and over and over again. When the Greek philosopher Socrates was condemned to die, he drank his hemlock with great serenity, it says. In the face of death, with no God to call on at all, Socrates discussed the pros and cons of immortality with composure and this reasonableness. He died the way... We would like to die. He died as we would call it well, with dignity. At Duke Divinity, when I was there, they housed this institute on care at the end of life. At this institute, it brings together the disciplines of medicine and sociology and theology in order to help provide the terminally ill with with a good death a death like Socrates. When we turn, though, to Jesus' death, we see it was nothing like the death of Socrates. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark says he was trembling. Matthew says he threw himself to the ground, while Luke says he was sweating and his sweat fell like drops of blood. Jesus does not want to drink his cup, Jesus doesn't want to be alone. Can't you watch for just one more hour, Jesus asks in the garden. And when the end comes, he is not in control, but is calling out desperately like a child abandoned by his parent. And we always like to soften this picture. There are always all kinds of softening of this picture, ways of making it less medical and more endurable, the way bad religious art tries to make suffering tolerable, the way art history has encapsulated Jesus' death forever. The words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, are also, as Alyssa said, the, the first lines of Psalm 22. So some have asked, was not Jesus, of course, just a pious believer, simply reciting a verse he had known since his childhood from the cross? After all, dying people, people who die well, right, amazingly revert to prayers that formed them from their youth, the way a person who hasn't spoken for days may recite the Lord's Prayer, now I lay me down to sleep, says the 90-year-old from the nursing home, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. 
Psalm 22 reads like a blueprint for crucifixion. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He committed his cause to the Lord. Let him, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yea, dogs are found about me, a company of evildoers encircle me. I cannot count all my bones. This psalm reads, Yet the psalmist comes around to a magnificent statement of hope and trust at the end of this psalm. To him shall all the proud of the earth bow down. What hope, what trust in the Lord. So isn't it at least possible that Jesus intended to pray that day the whole psalm, not just one line, including this affirmative conclusion, this bit of hope that wraps it all up? Isn't that the prettier picture? Thus he was not abandoned at all. After all, no, he, he didn't feel forsaken at all then. He would have prayed the whole psalm, right, had he just been alive to do it still. Or the tradition did not remember the whole telling of the psalm. Maybe it was that, or, or something else like that, something to make it seem like Jesus died well. This interpretation opens the way to a happier crucifixion and a less mysterious God. Perhaps Jesus didn't suffer quite as much as we thought he did, or perhaps he only suffered as a human being. There was always a divine part of him, maybe floating above the hideous scene, untouched by fear and pain. This gentler interpretation makes it easy to think about a beautiful death. Death takes its place as a natural stage of life on the way to immortality. Socrates was right then. There's nothing to be afraid of. We all can die well. When, call, when Paul called death the last enemy to be destroyed, he must have been depressed because death is just a natural way of life. But if that's the case, why this cry of dereliction? Why would this even ever have been in there? Why this abandoned ship? If it's really not going to sink after all. There's an old saying about Jesus that casts light on our question. An old saying that I've quoted here before, probably last Lent. You might remember it. An ancient theologian said, what Christ did not assume, he did not redeem. Which means if there is any part of this human chaos that Jesus did not take on himself, then that part is left outside of redemption. What he did not assume, he did not redeem. Have you ever been tempted? So was he. Thus your temptations have been redeemed. Have you ever been hated? So was he. You have a place in him then. Have you ever been lonely? Have you ever been afraid? Have you ever felt fully forsaken without a place to call home? So was he. Have you ever had doubts not only about yourself but about God? Have you ever cried when you're sad? Do you sweat when you're afraid? So did he. So did he. So did he. My therapist told me 
recently about a patient she had many, many years ago who was obsessed about her own delusions about God. She said, like, I believe that God like, knows everything I'm thinking all the time. But then I think to myself that that's got to be ridiculous. I must be delusional. There is no possible way. God could know everything I'm thinking all the time. Why am I so obsessed with this? She would say, to which my therapist responded, well, if that makes you delusional, I must be delusional too. Because do any of us really want a God who doesn't know what we're thinking? What we're fearing? What we're sad about? A God to whom certain rooms of our lives are off limits? Are there deep places we don't want God to go? And my first instinct is to say, yes, yes, of course. Of course we want a God who doesn't know everything we think because, gosh, the things we think. But when we stand at the foot of the cross and think it through, we say, no. What Jesus did not assume, he did not redeem. At Christmas, we celebrated the incarnation. We celebrated a God taking on flesh. We call him Emmanuel, God with us. But we were thinking of an adorable baby at Christmas. Good Friday and Holy Saturday is Emmanuel with a vengeance. When we begin to glimpse the full extent of this flesh. Jesus is a baby, all right. He's the one abandoned in a dumpster. He's also the scared and pregnant teenager with no options. He's the jobless guy loitering on, on Richmond Highway. He's home in an AIDS clinic or in the D.C. jail or at a refugee camp. He's home in depression. He's being tortured to death in one of 106 nations on the face of the earth. He's a suicidal teenager. He is you at your lowest possible point. The point you say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He has gone completely derelict. He is the sinking ship. And you may ask, was Jesus really abandoned by God? Or did he just feel abandoned? And my response to your excellent question, if you have it, is, sorry, I, I, that's deeper than I can go. I today am like a guide who says, I've taken you only this far, but here we part company, and I can't go any further with you into that question. There have been bolder guides than me, of course, who have gone to a cross. St. John of the Cross spoke of the believer's dark night of the soul. Luther spoke trembling of the hidden God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that this generation might have to live as if there were no God, but also in the presence of God. It's significant that Bonhoeffer said that not in a university, but at a concentration camp. Jesus was forsaken by God. The one who promised Israel, I will never leave you or forsake you. Can a mother forget her nursing child, the psalmist said, so I will not forget you. 
and the child protested, protested it, protested against it to this God who had forsaken him. And what do we do with that? I believe it's a start for you and me, an invitation. When we are plunged into a deep place and feel abandoned by God, we will cry out to God. We may feel we are praying desperately, fervently, stupidly into this absence, like believers left hanging in the dark. But I say, go ahead. And we had someone in our congregation recently go through a horrible, horrible um, experience of grief. And she said, I am just so angry at God. So angry that God would abandon me. And I say, go ahead. This God says, Eli, Eli, lama sabatani. Go ahead, rage against the dying light in the name of the one who was also forsaken. My God, my God, why? If we cannot get this sense of how forsaken this Jesus was, we cannot understand all that Jesus took on for us. And so as people who often feel forsaken, as people who feel like when we question God, when we feel like we can't find God, when God seems so distant, so far away, um, when, when we feel that, we often feel like we have to wrap it up like Psalm 22. We have to wrap it up like Psalm 22 with some little bit of light, some little bit of hope, because after all, Jesus probably wasn't really forsaken. Jesus was forsaken. And so if you feel forsaken today, or if you have felt forsaken, or if you know someone who does feel forsaken, what he did not assume, he did not redeem. Would you pray with me as we sing the songs that, um, that we've been praying throughout this series? When I come to you in prayer, Lord, have mercy. When I wonder if you're there, Lord, have mercy. When I cannot find the way, Lord, have mercy. Should my heart begin to stray, Lord, have God, you hung on that cross as fully flesh, 
and yet the divine father turned God's back on that full flesh taking on all of our human brokenness. Because God, you as divine, you as perfect, you as glorious cannot look at, cannot look at evil. Can't, can't look at it when it takes, when it just overcomes us, when you can't look at us being hurt. You can't look sometimes, sometimes when it's, when it's taken over the entire body of Jesus, when all the world's pain, all the world's, world's abandonment, all the world's evil is now on the person of Jesus hanging on that cross. You, you looked away. And when you look away, when you died alone, when you were taken off that cross, buried in that tomb, descended into hell to know well what sin and death is like, you redeemed all of the world so that never again, never again, would you turn your face away from us. And so we, a people who know well what it's like to cry, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, while Christ was fully forsaken, we are never forsaken. And we give praise and glory to you, God, for that gift. We ask that you would be near and close to those who cannot sense that kind of radical love in their lives, but rather every day feel like you've turned your face from them. We lift those people up to you in grief, in illness they can't understand, can't fathom, in job loss, in depression, in every area of life that feels like, God, why? Father, why? Daddy, why? And we pray that prayer that you taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Yeah.
is the king.